I've never heard, I mean, you guys could be part of the Moron Tabernacle Choir without any problem at all. You know, I preached one time at a little church, that's been years ago, uh, I forget where it was, down in Alabama someplace. And you know, we don't have a church brochure uh, in our church, we just tell you what's going on and and uh, don't waste the time to put that kind of stuff in a thing, which is fine if you do. But I'll never forget, I was preaching this church, and uh, sometimes little church brochures are absolutely hilarious. Um, this one said, come tonight at 5 o'clock, and our choir is going to sing five wonderful hymns of the faith. And then Bob Alexander is going to preach on what it's like to be in hell. And uh, everybody thought that the music they were singing was going to be what it was like to be in hell, and that kind of put the thing together. That's not the, what it was, but it's a thing where you guys were great this morning, and I, I appreciate it. Well, if you have pro- your Bible, let's go to Proverbs chapter 30 on the YouTube, and uh, we'll, uh, we're going to look at some things. And, you know, uh, Proverbs chapter 30, you're, you're seeing this chapter begin to develop itself, and... Uh, Last Sunday, we began to move into the tribulation uh, itself uh, with a set of verses that really begin to unlock the keys uh, to that time period. You know, the ability to see and understand how the Bible itself will be really, and I say this all the time, all that we need to, uh, to figure everything out. You know, great lessons for uh, understanding that the Bible is all that you need. And all dealing in the last three or four weeks, in fact, this whole chapter so far, all dealing with and around the generation of God. God's hand moving down through the 19th and the 20th century, certainly into the 20th century, but focusing around that crucial time in 1948 when the nation of Israel again uh, becomes the uh, people of God. And the star of David went up over a national uh, nation uh, declaring themselves as a nation. By the way, just so you know, um, the, the star of David, that six-pointed star, six-pointed star, um, is uh, is never been the star of David. In fact, you want to find that star, you'll find it in Acts chapter seven. It's the star of Rephidim, uh, their false god. So even their flag uh, has been called the star of David, but. It has nothing to do with David and has everything to do with the false gods that they followed uh, back in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, we began to look at one of the greatest or probably the single greatest doctrine uh, dealing with this time uh, of the restoration of the nation of Israel in the Bible. And, uh, And, you know, like many other great doctrines, this has been lost completely. Uh, over 800 times in the Old Testament, um, you're going to find a reference to this aspect of God bringing back the nation of Israel. Certainly in the Minor Prophets, as I told you yesterday in Bible Institute, you know, it's, it's just through all of those. Each book is simply about that. Ezekiel, uh, you know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Each one of the prophets, the major prophets, actually picture the nation of Israel going through uh, the tribulation period. And uh, it's a thing where each one of them, uh, by, the, by their own commission given to them by God, uh, will, will follow through, and you'll see all through those books uh, how that all lays out. When we get into the New Testament, we know that the book of Romans is our handbook for 
Christian doctrine for the church. It's what we follow. Uh, it's the first book in the, in the New Testament after the uh, moving from the nation of Israel to the church and from the Old Testament to the New Testament through the book of Acts and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Romans, which he firmly dictates down to us, the church, what we are to follow and uh, what we are to believe. And in two chapters, he dedicates uh, to the nation of Israel, and he says in, in Romans chapter 11 that, that he would have us not to be ignorant concerning the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, and I've said this many, many times, there's seven things that the New Testament writers tell us as the church that we are not to be ignorant of. And you might understand and might have guessed that those are the seven things that most of God's people have no clue about. Romans chapter 9 will show you and me how Israel got into the mess that they got into. And then you have chapter 10, which actually shows the gospel going to the Gentiles, you and me. And then in chapter 11, you have the restoration, God bringing back the nation of Israel and restoring them. And, you know, even in the book of Romans, he follows that chronological order. And if you want a book in the Old Testament that really, really lays it out in a chronological order, uh, the best book would be the book of Ezekiel. And, uh, you know, Ezekiel has 48 chapters in it. The whole aspect is about God restoring the nation of Israel. Ezekiel is a type of the nation of Israel. He goes into captivity, and the second captivity with uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes down, and uh, he is taken captive, as Daniel and the Hebrew children are, and he's a picture of the nation of Israel going under that captivity. So it's no wonder that that book itself will break down and show you uh, what we're about to look at today. And, you know, as we come through Proverbs chapter 30, what it's doing, it's giving us sets of ideas or concepts that when you break them down, it gives you a complete picture of everything that's going on. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, it breaks down basically into, into three fundamental large sections. Uh, the first section is chapter 1 through chapter 24, and in that section, you're going to find God describing the judgment on the nation of Israel that they're going to go through in the tribulation period. The second great piece of information will be chapter 25 through chapter 35, and that'll be God's judgment on the Gentile nations during the tribulation period. And then when it comes to Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, up to chapter 39, this is where you begin to see uh, the generation that we have been talking about begin to see it unfold uh, in this great chapter. And I want to read for you uh, uh, in our introduction today, uh, chapter uh, uh, 30, uh, uh, 36, and uh, I want to read verses 23 through 28. Now watch how this thing develops. He says, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord, uh, Lord God. When I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. Now, this is a prophecy. And what he's saying here, he's saying that he's going to, he's going to uh, 
get a spot in the midst of the nation of Israel and that all the heathen are going to know who he is. Now look at verse 24. Here's how he's going to do that. He made a statement in 23. Now watch how he, what he's going to do in chapter 20, uh, in verse 24. And this is what we've been looking at. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all the countries and will bring in your own land. There's 1948 right there. That's exactly what he did. He said in verse 23 that he was going to do something with them, and then he tells you what he's going to do in verse 24. Now, verse 25, uh, notice there's a paragraph mark there. Now, he jumps over the tribulation period and lands right into the millennium. And look what he says here. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all of your filthiness, and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. Now that is jumping right over the whole tribulation period and landing right smack dab in what he's going to do. That clean water is, a, is like the Old Testament cleansing and, and the sprinkling uh, that was a representative of their cleansing. It has nothing to do with their salvation or somebody being baptized. If you're a Catholic out there and you're saying, see, that's where they, we get our sprinkling from, well, that may be where you get your sprinkling from, but uh, your sprinkler system's broke, so don't worry about it. Now, verse 26, continue on. We're in the millennium still. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of, of, uh, a heart of flesh. Now, this will be uh, found in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9, where God actually gives them a new heart and a new spirit. And this is what they get in the millennium. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. That's the millennium. Now watch. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Now that is the end game for God. The getting the nation of Israel back into the land. And what you just saw there in the book of Ezekiel uh, was a picture of how this thing is going to develop itself. He made a statement that he's going to bring them back and his name is going to be established through them to the Gentiles. Then he showed you how he was going to do it. Bringing them out of all the nations that they were scattered in from 606 B.C. And he did that in 1948. Actually, if you want to put a transition time on it, 1918 to 1948, but certainly by 1948, they're back in the land. And then he shows you that what he's going to do with them in the millennium and how it's all going to, uh, you know, going to bring them back to God and God is going to be their God and he's going to be their people. That is what God is going to accomplish with the nation of Israel. Right now, we're looking at all the pieces of that as we examine this generation that we saw in Matthew chapter 24, that is the last generation before everything comes back. Then in Ezekiel, going back there, we go into chapter 37, and in chapter 37, we have the great chapter on God restoring them and giving them life. He told you what he was going to do in chapter 36. Now, chapter 37 is dedicated to that. This is the famous dry bones chapter. This is, the, this is the chapter that talks about, they have the old song that they used to sing, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. And it's a spiritual song based on uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. 
how that the uh, uh, Israel is these dry bones. They've been dry and dusty and, and dried up for almost 3,000 years. And now uh, they've been lost to time. Now God begins to bring them back. And during this time period, in this generation, he begins to connect the bones back together. Then he, he puts flesh on it. He puts muscle on it. It's all through the chapter. And then when he has a body standing there now that has been put together from the dry bones, picture the nation of Israel, then he breathes life into them. And at that point, they become a, a nation. And verse 11 of chapter 37 says, And he says unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Incredible, incredible. Chapter 38, he now preaches a prophecy against the Antichrist and all of the nations that, uh, uh, for their final destruction through addressing Gog and Magog and Mishael and, and, and Tubal. And then in chapter 39, we have the battle of Armageddon, which ends the great uh, tribulation period. We talked about this in great detail yesterday in Bible Institute, for those of you that were tuned in, and then we are going to continue on with it uh, coming up here in two weeks as we stay with that. And then what happens is this, and I want you to see this whole, I want you to have this whole aspect of this. Then we get into chapter 40, and from chapter 40 through chapter 48, he now has given us everything to bring us up to them getting into the land and becoming his people. The fulfillment of that generation that we have been focusing on and talking about. And how the, now the millennial uh, structure, God's kingdom, will operate. And without a doubt, it's the most complete and total picture from chapter 36. Once you break down the whole book of Ezekiel, the uh, God's judgment on Israel, God's judgment on the Gentiles, and then the systematic chronological order that God is going to now, in the end of times, is going to bring all this to pass and going to establish what he promised in Matthew chapter 24 with the beginning of the budding of, of, of the fig tree. And it's an incredible, incredible study. And then last week also we saw in verse 14, back to Proverbs chapter 30, the teeth as swords and knives uh, devouring uh, the nation of Israel. And we now know that this is not only historically the nations that have been against them since 1948, but also the nations in the tribulation period. Then we looked at verse 15, and we looked and talked about the horse leech and, uh, the, and saw it as the devil himself. And uh, then we talked about that the horse leech has two sisters, and we defined those for you as well as they can be defined. And uh, we saw the horse leech as, as Beelzebub, the king, lord of the flies, the devil himself, and then the two daughters as being his two components in the tribulation period, the Muslim race and the Roman Catholic Church uh, and all the demonic activity that takes place uh, during that time. And then in verse 16, four things that it says that it's not enough uh, from the Bible, uh, and we laid all of that out. And I showed you how that we're moving from the church age and the end of the church age into the tribulation period. And we talked about those four things and I identified them. It's so important that you get these things down. There's five sets of them that we're going to look at and every one of them will give you another piece of the puzzle opening up the tribulation period and showing you a little better, closer understanding of it and what's going on. In verse 16, the first thing we saw was the grave. 
and I showed you how that in the tribulation period, uh, many, many people die, that there's no end of death until Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. In fact, Isaiah 5, 14, I gave you this last week, tells you that hell is enlarged during the tribulation period. And there'll be no death till the end of death until the one who has the keys of death and hell come back. And we talked about that. The second thing was the barren womb. And I showed you how that Israel uh, is uh, uh, pictured in the Old Testament by seven women who were barren, could not have children. And when they have a child, each one of those man-child that they have is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and pictures something about him. And we looked at that. The fact that there was no water on the earth. The third thing, and I ran you back to James chapter 5, and we now know that that's the former and the latter rain. And then the fourth thing was the fire and how that that's a picture of God's coming judgment in the Bible uh, during the tribulation period. And that would be, as we saw, Ezekiel chapter 1 through chapter 35. God's pouring out His wrath on not only the nation of Israel, but also on the Gentile nations. And uh, in all of this, and this is what I want to stay, keep you focused on, in all of this, it's how we are dealing with a different component of the tribulation period. The tribulation is, in a, in a broad general sense, most people just chalk, chalk, chalk it up to, you know, 666, the Antichrist, and taking over the world. Much more to it than that. There's a design behind it. There's a purpose, and there's components to it. And, you know, for most people, that's, that's all the farther they ever get in it. Just like most of them, that's all the farther they ever get in the crucifixion is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we know when you go back to the Old Testament, in both cases, crucifixion and the tribulation, there's much more to it. And it really just depends on what level that you're going to say in your life, I don't want any more Bible. You know, some people just take the minimum. Some people get in a little bit more and take a little bit more. Some people, they just, they eat, sleep, and drink if they can't get enough of it. And uh, every aspect of this, as you're going to see today, uh, will be a, a different component. And when you put them all together, uh, you have a complete picture of what's going on. You know, illustrated, and I say this again, on the importance of key words in the Bible, key books in the Bible, and key words in the Bible. You know, the Bible, and I, I've tried to put this into your head for years, the Bible is a book of components, a book of parts. And most people don't look at it that way. They look at it as a complete Bible. And if you just look at it as a complete Bible, it's overwhelming to you. This is why so many people, when they start to read the Bible, even study the Bible, they don't have anybody with any intelligence to give them any kind of workable plan to go through it. So they try to jump into uh, you know, 31,171 verses, 66 books of the Bible, 1,189 chapters. They just jump right smack dab in the middle and they drowned. They don't know what they're reading. They don't know why they're reading it. They don't know what they're looking for. And they certainly don't know what God is doing. So after a while, hey, I get it. It gets boring. You lose sight of it. It's like watching a TV program with no audio. You can't understand what anybody's saying. It gets boring real quick. And that's what happens with the Bible. And the Bible is a book of components. And here in this church, I, don't, I teach you the Bible just like I, I was taught and learned it myself. We teach it componently. And that's what we're doing in Bible Institute. That's what we do in the people ministry. That's what we do on Sunday morning and certainly Thursday night is to take the pieces of the Bible 
and begin to explain to you how each piece works, and then as you have that compartment, that piece, there it is, understanding it, and you get eight or nine or ten of those, then you learn how to bolt them together to get the whole concept. Uh, and, and that's what we do. I get, week after week after week, I get texts or emails from people who, or phone calls actually too, uh, from people who are going through uh, all the books of the Bible that we did, what, 15, 16 years ago? That I, on a Sunday morning, I took, you know, every one, one a week, every book of the Bible and broke it down for you in every conceivable format that if you would just sit down and go through it and put it into your Bible, you would understand that book. And I did that because the Bible is built by 66 components in a major way, 66 books. You learn each one of those books the way you need to, and then you bolt them together through the whole Bible, you got it. And then what you got to do is go back and, and then get each one of those books broken down, but that's how you learn the Word of God. Key verses, key books, and key words, and bolting them together. Now today, giving you that little recap, so you got to remember what we did because where we're going today. We will look at our next set of four things found in chapter 30. And I'm going to read for you Proverbs chapter 30, verses 17 uh, through uh, 20. It says this, The eye that mocketh at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens uh, of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles, eagles shall eat it. Uh, there be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. Uh, the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus Thank you for all those that are tuning in today and, and following us. And we pray, Father, as they uh, open up their Bibles and their notebooks and they begin to go through this material uh, because they love you and they love the Word of God. We pray, Father, that it will be a blessing to them. Help us through this time to stay together, to stay close, even though we have to be apart. And ask us, Father, to give us the unity of the Spirit that holds us and bonds us together. May the older ones, the leaders, take care of the younger ones. Check on them. Make sure they're okay. Do what we can do to help them. Help me come up with creative ideas to uh, keep us together and keep us uh, close, even though we have to be separated. <clears throat> we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it. Amen. All right, look at verse 17. It says, The eye <clears throat> that mocketh at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens <clears throat> of the valley, shall pick it out, and the young eagle shall eat it. <clears throat> now the I here will be the uh, defined for you in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. And it's an evil eye. <clears throat> it's an eye of darkness. <clears throat> it's connected with the Antichrist and his crowd. And it would be the lofty eyes of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 13, we saw a week or two ago. And this will be the generation <clears throat> that will start in 1948, how they look at things, and then how it degenerates through our time. Here we are, <clears throat> you know, 2020, degenerates through our generation and then into the tribulation period 
with the Antichrist and his crowd. Now, look at there, the ravens of the valley, who eat the eyes, uh, will be a reference to the battle of Armageddon itself. And in the valley of Armageddon, sometimes called Megiddo, sometimes called the valley of Jezreel, uh, this is where the last great battle takes place. These are the ones of verse 14 whose teeth and jaw teeth like swords and knives to destroy uh, the nation of Israel. Now this will be the people in the tribulation who line up against, and the Bible says that all nations, we saw it yesterday, all nations will, will do that. Now it's a thing where uh, I want you to see this even clearer Go back to Ezekiel chapter 39, and let me just read an excerpt out of this. I want to show you three places that define this battle and what he's talking about in this verse. And if you don't have these verses up alongside this in Proverbs chapter 30 and all of them connected together, you need to, you need to do that, and it'll, it'll, it'll help you put it together. I mean, there's many more, but these are the three of the major ones. All right, look at verse chapter 39, verses 17 through 21. Verse 17. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come together yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel. This will be the mountains around the, or in the valley of Armageddon, the ring it, the mountains around it, uh, the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty and drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams and lambs and of goats and of bullocks and all them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you be full and drink blood till you be drunken. Of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you, Thus shall you be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day and forward. Now that's the battle of Armageddon. That's the great supper that he's calling and talking about where the, the men who despise their father and their mother, their eyes actually <clears throat> get picked out by the ravens and eaten by the eagles. Another one, the second one, is in <clears throat> Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, <clears throat> And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We talked about that winepress in great detail yesterday in Bible Institute. So there again, you should have that already ahead of the game, so to speak, on what we're talking about here. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the great supper of the great God, that they may that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, 
both small and great. You always want to watch the term small and great in the Bible because the last place you find it uh, will be in Revelation chapter 20 where the dead stand before God small and great. So you always want to mark that. That's always going to be something that you want to look at. Then the third one is Revelation chapter 16, 16, which gives us the location of this battle. And it says, and he gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now Armageddon, the word Armageddon means the valley of the hill of the crowded. And uh, it's sometimes called the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo means the, the place of crowds. It's also sometimes called uh, the uh, Jezreel Valley or Valley of Jezreel. It's probably the uh, in the last 3,000 years, I don't know of another spot that has hosted more battles. 34 battles have been fought in that, in the last, in that valley in the last 3,000 years. It's lower Galilee uh, of Israel in, the, in Israel in the northern plains. If you want a map of it, I taught this yesterday in the Institute, <coughs> John Busquet, and then got a hold of me and said that he had already gotten maps up of it uh, and if you would like a copy of that map, he can email it to you. Uh, just either call him or text him or email him, and he'll be glad to get it out to you so you can actually see it. He's got pictures of it and everything, exactly where it's at. Uh, and so you can put a picture with it. And uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, tells us that when this battle takes place, there's over 200 million men involved in this battle, greatest battle in the history of the world. And the Bible says that when the Lord does all these things and he comes down, uh, that the blood uh, is three and a half feet high and the valley is 160 miles in a kind of a circle with mountains on all sides with only one way in. And this is where the Antichrist traps the nation of Israel right before the second coming of Christ. And I showed you yesterday in Revelation 14 in Bible Institute how he comes down takes them out, tribulation saints, and then kills everybody in that valley. And the Bible says that the blood from the dead of 200 million men is three and a half feet high for 160 miles around. It's quite a a bloodbath, as we would use the term with Freddy Krueger and Halloween. Uh, It's it's quite a bloodbath. Nothing that you've ever seen about it. And um, then I want you to uh, look at verse 18. Now again, watch how uh, you just use your Bible here. The Hebrew is worthless. Uh, any Most commentaries are worthless. You just let the Bible lay it out for you. Now look at verse 18. Now we're going to get into these next set of four. There be three things which are too wonderful for me. Yea, four which I know not. Now yesterday in Bible Institute, I gave you guys a little test. And uh, I told you that uh, uh, you could you could uh, um, you could you could try to look into your Bible and try to define what these four things are before I lay them out and give them to you. Kind of a little test of where you're at. Uh, and so uh, that was your assignment. And uh, you know I hope that you did that. Now you're going to find out. I did, like I said, there's no you know no grading on this. You keep it to yourself, and I'm going to walk through it now. Let's see how. You figured it out. If you got it wrong, it's okay. Now you're going to learn a little bit more about how that you do it, how you lay it out. It's okay. Now the first one here, your first test question, was the way of an eagle 
in the air. Now, you know, when you read things like this in the Bible, I get it. Your first impression is to say, you know, what is this all talking about? But you don't go there. You always want to fall back when it comes to Bible questions. You always want to fall back on what you do know that coincide with what you're looking at. Now, this will be, I'll just give you the answer, and then I'll go back and show it to you. This will be a reference to God in the tribulation period as a mother eagle flittering over the nation of Israel to protect her or deal with her and to keep her going in the right direction. You're going to find in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's a tribulation passage, a very clear tribulation passage, you're going to find there that it's called the Song of Moses. And when you get over to Revelation chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, you're going to buy, the Bible's going to tell you that they sang a new song. And that new song that they're singing actually is the Song of Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Uh, it's a victory song. <clears throat> you find it in Psalms 118.4. You find it in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. You find it in Judges chapter 5. And it's a song that they sing when they get the victory. And the reason why it's called the Song of Moses in the Old Testament because we know Moses is one of the two witnesses that show up and, and lead them through uh, the tribulation period. Now, having said all that, look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11. Talking about God the Father. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them uh, beneath them on her wings, verse 12, so the Lord did with Israel. See? It's showing you that Israel, uh, God to Israel is like a mother eagle and she's like the little chicks that she's protecting and taking care of. Uh, you know, it, 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 in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, the Bible says when she begins to flee from the Antichrist that she's given two wings of a great eagle. And of course, that's a reference to God the Father bringing her through. In Matthew chapter 24, when we saw the great generation, that chapter, uh, when they begin to run out of Jerusalem again in verse 20, it says, play that's your flight. It's not talking about Southwest Airlines or El Alamein. It's talking about them fleeing, the flight, like flying, not be on the Sabbath day or a woman uh, with child uh, because they're going under the wings of an eagle. Now, another great verse on this, will be found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. That you hear a lot. You get, uh, you get beautiful pictures of, of an eagle soaring in the air, you know, and all those things. Uh, you can buy them at bookstores or, you know, places, and, and they'll always put a verse under it because they want you to see what uh, it's talking about. And this is always the verse they put down there. And it's a great verse, and I like the picture. I'm not fighting at all. I'm just saying this is what they do. But you need to know that the verse is the tribulation context, even though there is an inspirational, which I'll get to in a moment. But this is what the verse says, Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Now, obviously, that's a, once we read that and put it into the context of what we're looking at here as an eagle in the air, uh, we can see that as God over the nation of Israel with Deuteronomy 33. That's a reference to God as a mother eagle, uh, you know, who is dealing with 
them and restoring the nation of Israel. And it says the way of an eagle in the air. But let me talk about it from an inspirational application for just a moment. I really can't pass this up. In fact, there's two great inspirational things here I want to look at. I don't want this to be a prophet lesson on prophecy or just history. I want you to get something out of it besides just getting something out of it. Inspirationally, for sure, it's a picture of you and me with the eyes of an eagle that are very sharp. An eagle can fly 200 feet above the ground and, and see everything in a panoramic view, and she can see a mouse moving, you know, a quarter of a mile away and go get that mouse for dinner or, or whatever. And it's a thing where she's soaring up there around and she's, she's, she's looking around and look, watching what's under her and, uh, you know, and sees uh, with a sharp eye everything from a high vantage point. Uh, in the Bible, it's likened to our high tower, uh, us being like an eagle through the Word of God, seeing all that's going on around you from an elevated position that the average person cannot see. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's like soaring above the very times that we live in. That's what the Bible does for you. You know, down through history, uh, you know, and I was going to school, uh, Dudley Do-Right was a famous thing. Everybody who did right was a Dudley Do-Right. And uh, then a little bit later on, it was, uh, you know, guys who always were, you know, doing things and the other guys would make fun of him. Uh, they would call him Andy Attaboy. You know, he was always saying, yes, and, and Attaboy. But every Christian, every Christian ought to be an Eddie Eagle. You ought to have the eyesight of an eagle when it comes to everything going around you. Now, this is what the Bible calls understanding. Just so we, we get it. I'm not talking about, you know, just being up in the air and looking around. I'm talking about how this relates. You know in life you can get, you can get knowledge, the knowledge is simply facts. Any unsaved man can get knowledge. And that knowledge, when you apply it, <clears throat> can turn into wisdom. And any unsaved man can get wisdom. But understanding is something that is reserved only for somebody who or is an Eddie Eagle. It's a situation where uh, understanding will always tell you in any given situation what God's hand is doing in it and where you're at in relationship to His coming. So the eyes of an eagle should be the things around you that you see. You want to understand what's going on in the Middle East from an eagle standpoint. You want to understand what's going on in the United States of America from an eagle eye aspect. Don't get caught up in the political realm of the Democrats and the Republicans or this or that or, and get caught up in all that. See it for what it really is. Understand it. It's the same aspect with history. I've told you many, many times, history can be a very complicated thing because man takes something that is very simple and his greatest asset to history is making it really complicated. But all history is simply God moving in a direction to do his plan and then the devil moving to stop it. We've talked about that many, many times. But that's standing and seeing it from a high vantage point that you see all history and understand it that way. It changes the perspective of everything. No longer do you just look at the six o'clock news and just get it as uh, you get it now from an understandable approach. We talked last week or week before last, I guess it was, uh, about World War I and World War II. 
how World War I got the land ready for the Jews, World War II got the Jew ready for the land, and voila, 1948, bang, there they were. That's understanding it from an eagle eye perception. 9-11, the terrorist attacks all around us, even the virus that we're all uh, scared to death of and is creeping across this country. If they don't get a handle on it, it's going to be coming across your lawn very quickly. And it's a thing where everything, looking at the Jews, looking at the Gentiles, looking at the church, looking at yourself in God's plan, having the understanding of the eyes of an eagle to seeing it from an elevated position. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15, it talks about that, that we need to have... Uh, uh, we need to have uh, eyes of a dove. And of course, a dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. When you get over in chapter 5, verse 12, you find that Jesus Christ himself has the eyes of a dove. So what he's saying in those two passages is that you and I ought to see things the exact same way that God sees them. And where's he at? He's elevated. He's on the throne, brother. And he sees it from an incredible advantage point that needs to be how that we look at things. God's eyes are your eyes. You know, I deal with people all the time for almost 50 years. And I love it. I enjoy it. But not everybody works out the way you want them to. I mean, there's never been a church that I've been associated with or a ministry or, or anything, including this one, that everybody, you know, does what, you know, they should do and what I'd like for them to do to make their life a lot easier than it really is. And, uh, you know, that's all I know how to do. I can take a man or a young lady and I can, t- I can train them and bring them wherever God wants them to be. Uh, and, but I've learned two infallible truths. And it is so true. Uh, in all those times and all those years, I have learned two absolute infallible truths when it comes to trying to help people, work with people, deal with people, and get people to see and understand God. R- the first thing I've learned is you're either going to soar with eagles or you're going to flock up with a bunch of turkeys. It's just that simple. You're either going to stay in the ground and you're just going to walk around picking in the leaves or you're going to get high above the circumstances uh, one way or the other. You're either going to soar with the eagles or you're going to be a bunch of turkeys and just walk around. And the second thing I've learned, you cannot send a turkey to eagle school. You can't. They're unteachable. They're, They're so caught up in what they're doing that they never will look past their own circumstances and see what they did. And many times, and we'll see this in here a little bit, many times it's because they've gotten themselves in such a dire strait of problems and situations that um, they can't see anything around them but their issues. And I get that. So the first thing we see is a way of an eagle with a, in, the, in the air. How about it? Did you get that one right? Did you? Did you figure that one out? You should have. The second one, the way of a serpent upon a rock. Now, this one might be a little more complicated, I, I, I guess. I'll give you this one. Maybe this is the one you all got. I don't know. But you're going to find that in uh, uh, the Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and again, in various places, Isaiah 27, 1 would be a good place, that the serpent is defined for you as the devil. So we get pieces of the puzzle here. The serpent is the devil. We already know that the context of this has to be in the tribulation period. So now we got to deal with the rock. And of course, if you know anything about the Bible in the tribulation period, that will be a reference to the uh, Jew running into the wilderness and hiding out in 
Sela Petra, which is also called the Rock City. And it's, a, it's in the Jordan area of the Holy Land between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. It was started by a group called the Nabateans uh, over 2,000 years ago. And they went into this place that it's almost impossible for anybody to get in. It's got one five-mile little trail coming in that's only 30, 40 feet wide with 300-foot mountains on both sides, cliffs. And what they did is they got in here and they carved out a complete city in the rocks. Here again, if you want a picture of this and a map of it, John also did that. Just get it, He'll give it all to you. And it's absolutely incredible. It's, they actually carved whole buildings and cities out of the limestone rock. Now, this is called the Sela Petra. And what happens is, is in the tribulation period, many of the Jews run into this place for a place of safety because it's almost impossible to get in. And uh, this is where they hold up. And it's a place where in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about it. And it talks about it in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19. And here's what it says. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. And of course, this is in history called the Rock City. And so when it talks about a serpent upon a rock, it's talking about in the tribulation, the devil going after them in the Rock City. Now the third one. How'd you do on that one? Now the third one. <laughs> I don't even know what to do with this one. On the third one. Ah, the way of a ship in the midst of the seas. Now as I said, I, I don't know where to begin here and I, I don't have the time to do this the way I, I need to do it. But this is going to be a reference and I'm going to show you this in a moment how you put this together. This is going to be a reference to in the tribulation period. And we know, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And we know what happened in Noah's time. The sons of God came down. And this is going to be a reference to that time period again when the sons of God come down from outer space, or however you want to say it, and uh, as they did in Noah's day, and, uh, and they came down then, and they're going to come down again. And I realize that, uh, uh, you know, this is rejected by all scholarship because scholarship doesn't believe in the giants. They don't believe in the sons of God. They don't believe any of that stuff. And once you get out of track with that, then, uh, you know, you're, you're in trouble. I, I suggest that you that I think it's on Netflix. Maybe it's, no, oh, I think it's Tubia. T-U-B-I, you get that channel? Go on there and scroll down to it, and there's a documentary on the giants and how that the Smithsonian Institute, uh, it's one of the most incredible things you'll ever see, and they document the giants that they have found in earth, but nobody wants to talk about it because it disrupts everything that uh, they're trying to teach us. And it's, it's an incredible deal. And I suggest that you, you look that up. I'm sure it's Tuba, Tubaya, T-U-B-I. I get that, Tubaya. I don't know how you pronounce it, Tubaya. Uh, to, you know, I'm not speaking a foreign language, Tubaya. And, um, and it's, a, it's incredible. And it's, 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 really, it's, it's just really, really, really an incredible thing. And I wish I had two or three hours on this one, but 
you know, uh, on the web, uh, I think it's on the website. We don't have a book on it, but I did this as a study. I can't, I don't know if I did it on a Thursday night or I did it on a New Year's Eve, but I did an exhaustive study. It's on the website on UFOs in the Bible. And uh, obviously UFOs in the biblical sense, not in the uh, Carl Sagan sense or the uh, Van Damme sense or those guys, uh, uh, Von Daniken and all those guys. It's, uh, it's in the biblical sense. Because it's an incredible study to see how those sons of God came down. I mean, do you actually believe that when the sons of God came down uh, that they just showed up in Genesis 6 and said, hey guys, we're here, we're the fallen angels that come out of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And we thought we'd just show down here, boy, you got some good looking women. We thought maybe we'd have nobody up there, so we thought maybe we'd ask them out to date. Is it okay with you? It's not how it happened. The pattern is so clear if you have the eyes of an eagle exactly how the whole thing took place. Whoever those sons of God were when they came down, and you say, how do you know they came down? Because they named all the constellations after them. Greek and Roman mythology and Babylonian mythology always paints the picture of these sons of God. I mean, you have Orion, the mighty hunter. That's Nimrod. And by the way, in your Old Testament, there's seven astronomical objects. In New Testament, too. In your Bible, there's seven, and they're called the ordinances of heaven. And they are key to understanding what God is doing. And it's an incredible study. And, and everybody just pfft, right over the top of their head. You have Orion. You have the Pleiades. You have Argo, the Ark. You have Scorpius. You have Serpines. You know, I don't know if you know it or not, but the whole sky up there has a biblical concept because the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth and there is a gospel within the stars because he told Abraham, look at the stars. It's one of the ways that God reglears his glory. But at the same time, it's a, it has been masked over, like everything else, by the Greek, the Egyptian, the Roman mythology. And you know where it came from? It came from the sons of God who came down and the Bible says they were mighty men of renown, and what they did, they named those constellations after them. You have Perseus, who rescues Andromeda from the great Kraken, dragon. It's all the Bible laid out except in a, in a humanistic Babylonian concept and, and of mythology with the master real deal. I don't know if you know this or not, but heaven is north. You say, where do you get that at? It's a book called the Bible. And it's found in Psalm 76 and again in Job chapter 26. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you know you have two norths. You have a magnetic north and you have true north. Just like you got two Christ. You got a true Christ and you got a magnetic Christ. And the magnetic Christ is based on the earth where the true north is based on the stars. And we know who made the stars. And magnetic north is about two, three degrees off of true north. And you know what? There's a lot of teachings about God. They're about two or three degrees off the truth, and they will send you straight to hell. It's true north and magnetic north. And in true north, you know what you have? You have the constellation Coryborealis. You know what that is? That's the northern crown. And around the north, where heaven is, you've got Serpine, the serpent. And it's a picture of the devil completely of circling uh, where heaven is, and guess what? His mouth 
is devouring the crown. You got Draco the dragon. You got, you got uh, Scorpio, the scorpion. You've got the, you've got the Gemini twins. You've got the uh, Perseus as Andromeda and Virgo, all connected, and they're named after those sons of God that came down. This is so above, so far above, you know, the average Christian and pastor that they'll never get it till they meet one of these guys at the gym and he's pumping a thousand pounds. I mean, it's incredible. Turn over to Psalms 104. I mean, we named the constellations after them. They fill the, they fill the caves of the ancient people that, that drew pictures of them coming down. And scientists sees it and they say, oh, see, that's proof that there were aliens here. No, <laughs> there ain't no aliens unless they come up from Mexico. No, the aliens I'm talking about are found out of Genesis chapter 6. Sons of God. Now look at Psalms 104. Verses 25, uh, 24, 25, and 26. Now just watch this, and let me show you one of the most absolute, incredible mystery passages in the Bible. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. Now here it comes. So is that great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable. Ah, here's your first key. Both what? Small and great. Look at verse 26. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee that thou mayest give them their meat in their due season. You know what he's saying here? Now years ago in 1200 and 1400, the Roman Catholic Church taught that the earth was flat. And if you, you could walk out there and see it was flat. And if you sailed out too far, you'd go off the edge. Or they taught there were sea monsters out there that would devour your ships. You know where they got that sound piece of theology? Right here. They thought that sea there was the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Of course, we know it's not. Say, how do you know it's not? Because Leviathan plays in it. And that's not talking about any body of water on earth. It's talking about the great deep up there. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1 says, In that day, second coming, the Lord with a sore and great and strong sword, that's in Revelation chapter 19 now, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even lion, the crooked serpent, there's Draco the dragon, called the crooked serpent in your constellations, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now we already saw in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon, the serpent, is the devil. So wherever this sea is, this is where the devil plays Leviathan, and he does his work. You remember when Job uh, and uh, 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 the devil went before God with Job, and the Lord asked the de- Job uh, asked the devil where he'd been. He said he'd been walking to and fro in the earth and up and down in it. And at that point in time, he's up at the throne of God. He's traveling back and forth in that great sea. And I'm telling you, you, you they came down once, and they're going to come down again. And I, all this stuff about you know extraterrestrial life and, 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 you know, uh, and science is looking for life out in the universe. They're going to find it, but it isn't the life that you're looking for. We have a SETI program where they're sending signals out to 
to all of these uh, uh, stars and galaxies and they're looking for somebody to answer back. They will. They will. You say, why haven't they? Verse 27, these wait upon thee that they mayest give their meat in their due season. They're waiting for God says you can do it. But they're going to do it. I mean, most people don't even know. It's a whole hum thing. The greatest radio telescope in the world is run by the Roman Catholic Church, the Jesuits, over in Rome. And it's got a large acronym that it, it's too large to lay out. But So they just take the beginning letters of the each one and lay it out. And I'll just spell it for you. I don't have the whole thing. It would take a whole service this morning. But if you just took the beginning letters of the acronyms of this Roman Catholic radio telescope who was committed by the Jesuits to look for life in outer space. It's L stands for something, U stands for something, C stands for something, I stands for something, F stands for something, E stands for something, R stands for something. Lay it out, Lucifer. And the whole world just says, I wonder if the walking dead's going to be on tonight. I'm telling you, when you get into your Bible and you get an elevated position, you get the eyes of an eagle. And I'm telling you, in Revelation chapter 12 and 13 and Job chapter 40, 41, the devil is Leviathan. And that sea is up there in the great deep, Genesis chapter 1. And it says in verse 26, here it comes, there go the ships. Now, you can do that whatever you want. I really don't care. I got to get that thing on UFO. I did a great uh, expose on Roswell in 1947, what took place in Roswell, New Mexico. Over there, you folks that are listening over there in England, our, our brothers and sisters over there, you got to get on the thing and check it out in 1980 in the Ramasham Forest uh, in Suffolk, England. Three days, just like it was in Roswell. And everybody's seen the mess that Roswell, you know, before Roswell in 1947, there was literally virtually no sightings of UFO. Why did suddenly in 1947, that guy out there flying over Mount Rainier and that little Piper Cub got seven little shiny discs chasing him all over the sky. Why did it, up to that point, there have been virtually nothing. And since that point, there have been over a million sightings to the Air Force comes up with a Project Brew book to investigate something that they say doesn't exist. You know how stupid it is to investigate something you say doesn't exist? Of course, they missed the fact, but I got eagle eyes. They missed the fact that it happened in 1947 in preparation, getting ready for what took place in 1948, the greatest generation, and here we are. So the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, a ship doesn't leave any trail that you can, I mean, it's got a short wake on it, but after a while, uh, you can't follow it at all. And these ships are hard to follow unless you get the eyes of an eagle and you get up high. <clears throat> Understanding is the key. And as I said, I wish I had time to go through all of that, but I don't. But understanding is the key. Then the fourth thing. <clears throat> the way of a man. Did you get that one right, by the way, number three? Huh? Law number four, and the way of a man with a maid. Now this is not, and this is what most people would, would, would fall into, this is not a general concept 
talking about some moral issue with a man uh, and a woman. But that's where everybody would go because you don't know what you're talking about. First of all, it has to fit in our context. I'm sorry, that's a terrible thing to do. It has to fit in our context. It has to fit in the context that whatever this is has to do with something not only through history and our generation, but in the tribulation period. Now, let me just break it down for you and see if you got this one right. The man here, and it was as the way, the way, not the act, the way. Not what a man does with a maid, the way. In other words, this is going to be a way of life through history for something. Well, let's just see here. I would just see, just think of just spitballing here, knowing a little bit about the Bible that I know. I'd say that the man here probably would be Abraham. And the maid would probably be Hagar. Who, if I'm not forgetting myself here in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, it was Sarah, or Sarai at that point, who said, here, take my maid and go into my maid. She's Sarah's handmaid. And the man Abraham here, when he took Hagar, the way of a man with a maid, what he produced was Ishmael, who becomes the Muslim race, who have given a nation of Israel fits for the next 3,000 years and up to this day wants to wipe them out. Anybody knows anything about Islam knows that Abraham was the father of the Muslims. He's also the father of, of Isaac. Uh, the nation of Israel. And what the Muslims do is they want to throw out Isaac and they say all the promises in the Bible that were given to Isaac are not true and all those are be given to Ishmael. And what Abraham did, the way of a man with a maid, had set up all the way back in Genesis what was the devil was going to use in the tribulation period. And you have to see that. You have to understand that. This is more than just some moral issue. This is a historical fact that a man with a maid created another kid, Ishmael, who becomes the Arabian, who becomes the Muslims, who the Muslims today trace their lineage back to God, their God, through Abraham, all because the way of a man with a maid. And this one bad choice plagued the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, today and into the tribulation period. Now, there's a moral here, and this is the second practical thing I want you to see, and I don't want to miss this one. The moral here is the long-lasting effect of the consequences of the bad choices that we make. I've taught you many, many times in people ministry and through other areas, you know, I've taught you about long-term and short-term. And I want to just stop here for just a moment. I want to tell you something, and if you're listening to me out there today, and many of you, your life is where it's at today, and I will do everything I can do to help you, and many of you have gotten past it, many of you have moved on, and some of you are still struggling now, and unfortunately, some of you will never survive it, probably. And it's simply because one bad choice can change your life forever. As the way with a man with a maid. I've seen families 
And I, I know this is not true. But I have seen families through my years in the ministry that it's almost like they got the curse of God on them. I mean, every aspect of the family is just a total wreck. I mean, going back to the moms and the dads and the grandkids and the aunts and the uncles, it's just, uh, and every once in a while you'll get one person who will come to the surface and break out of that. But on an overall concept, I've seen families where it's just, the whole thing is a lost cause. I've seen their kids. I've seen their grandkids. It's an unending, catastrophic mess of just total, complete marriage is bad, kids bad, everything bad. I mean, an absolute disaster. And many of them, you know, they, they, they never can get past that. I've seen individuals do the same thing. I've seen them make so many bad choices that they, uh, they can't get out of it. And it's not because God won't come down and get you out. It's because you have trapped yourself in your bad choices. You're going to see a lot of God's people going through what we're going through right now are going to fall apart, going to have issues, going to run fear, going to run panic. You know why? Because the time that you had to get the Bible down in your world to get you through times like this, I don't know what you were doing. But here it is. Dads are scared to death when they ought to be leading their families. Pastors are, wherever they're at, they ought to be leading their people in the church. It's a thing where the time that, and it all comes down to churches. Dumping the book, walking away from the Bible. I've seen churches just like, just like families that at one time they, 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 they had the Bible. They came out of a great noble heritage of preachers and men who believed the book. And today they're in total apostasy. And in every case, whether it be a family, whether it be an individual, whether it be a church. You know what? It all goes back to where the first bad choice came into your life and then you added to it from there. Now, I, I, I say it all the time, and in our church, when we all get back, I could show you kid after kid after kid, couple after couple after couple. They came out of families like that, that the families are just a disaster. But those kids said, I ain't part of it no more, and they broke out, and they broke that chain of bad choices, and now they're building a new legacy for their family by making the right choices. Hey, I've had people all my life, you see them every three or four years, you know, they'll, you, every year. They'll, they'll, they'll come for a while and they'll, they'll say, they'll cry and they'll weep and they'll, they'll say, and, they, and they'll, they'll start to do what's right. You start to put people to work with them and then, you know what, six weeks later, something comes up and you never see them again. Now they're off back wherever their little world is and, uh, and then they, they get under such conviction or they see something or hear something and God smoothed their heart and so they tippy-toe back in. Here I am. I'm back, you know, yeah, you're back, you know, we got we don't want you to come in this door anymore or the one upstairs, we got a special door for you, it's a revolving door and it's right over here. They just revolve in and revolve out. You know why? You know why people cannot get a handle on things? I'm going to tell you why. Because it's the bad choices they've made in their life. And you can get past that if you, if you can. But there comes a time in your life when your bad choices hold you hostage, hold your family hostage. Hold your heritage of your family hostage. 
Because I told you many, many times the greatest asset that God needed in the Old Testament and the New Testament was families, moms and dads, kids, their kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, aunts and uncles, everybody carrying the gospel, and the devil wants to break it down, and he has. And, you know, psychiatrists look at it. You know, people look at it. You know, therapists look at it. You know, the world looks at it. Counselors look at it, and they miss the whole thing. It, it isn't about how you were raised. It isn't about this or about it. It's about the choices that you made in life. And whether you're here today or listening to me out there, good or bad, your life, your life, good or bad, is based on the choices you've made. That's just that simple. And the way of a man with a maid for 3,000 years. And the worst part is coming. Israel's had to bear the brunt of that bad choice, the way with a man with a maid. Look at verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. Now we see a connection here to all this to an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wrong. Now there is so much here that, you know, we don't have time to get into it today, and I'm going to close this out here in just a few moments, but this adulterous woman will be defined for us in the book of Proverbs. She's the strange woman. She's the whorish woman. You can see her in action in chapter 5 and chapter 7 of the book of Proverbs. This will be the religious system of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, mother of harlots, Babylon, Mr. Religion. And this will be typified uh, in, in the Old Testament by a husband and wife team. One represents the Antichrist, one represents his religion, Ahab and Jezebel. And you want 1 Kings chapter 16. Also, you'll see a reference in the church age to it, Revelation chapter 2, verse 20 through 22, which we all know and love as the Roman Catholic Church. Again, clearly, it's so clearly defined in the Bible uh, that, that you couldn't miss it. And I want you to notice here, and I don't have time to get into this, but this is your second test. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wrong. She eats two things. She eats two things. That's your test. You had one yesterday for today. Now this is your test. Tell me Thursday night what two things she eats. Let's see what she got. So you can see how this chapter is so important to define the tribulation in a way never seen anywhere else in the Bible. You get the concept down, and then Proverbs just 30 just opens it up. With just your Bible, it's the key to understanding, understanding. You know, in John chapter 16, that's our great chapter on the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, it's where you want to go if you really want to build a relationship with the Word of God through the Holy Spirit of God. It's where you start. Because it shows you in chapter 16 seven things that the Holy Spirit of God is going to do for you. And if you want to build a relationship with the Holy Spirit of God, which is the key to opening up the Bible, as I showed you in Luke chapter 21 many times, then you're going to have to get the understand these seven things. Now, the first three are, are pretty... Um, you know, direct. Uh, in verse 8 of chapter 16, he says he's going to, the Holy Spirit of God, when he comes, is going to reprove the world of sin. That means he's going to tell people you need to get saved. 
The second thing is he's going to reprove the world of righteousness. That means he's going to show the people who need to get reproved of sin, Jesus Christ is the only way. And then the third thing, he's going to reprove the world of judgment. That means he's going to show the world that if you reject the first, the middle one, you're going to wind up in the lake of fire, God's judgment. Then the, 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 the other uh, three, I said there were seven, there's six. The other three is the fact that, no, there are seven, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the, the fourth thing is verse 13, he's going to lead and guide us into all truth. So if he's going to lead and guide us into all truth, you've got to have the truth. Otherwise, there's no leading and guiding. You have a Bible, two Bibles, and they don't say the same thing, then you don't have truth. And how can you guide somebody in that? The fifth thing in verse 13 is going to show us prophecy, which we have seen how that works in our study on this generation. The fourth thing he's going to, verse 14, he's going to glorify Christ. And the seventh thing, He's going to show us what is of God and what is not of God. And there in these seven things lies the beginning of your understanding. And uh, it's a thing where that is the whole thing comes down to not your education, but your relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. Your ability, your ability to get the understanding of God through the Holy Spirit of God, who will take the Bible itself, open it up, and show you and give you the eyes of an eagle that you can look at any circumstance in life and not see it from the world standpoint, but see it from God's standpoint and have understanding in the hand of God and everything that He's doing in this world, in history around you in your own life and around you in the world that we live in and knowing where it's going to that great day of the Lord when the Lord comes back and establishes His kingdom. Well, we'll hold up there and let's have a word of prayer. Appreciate you 